Hi, this is the Home Bodies Yoga Podcast, and I'm Rebecca Hirsch, and this is our 20th episode. In this podcast, I ask people what they do when they unroll their yoga mat and tell you a little bit about what's going on on mine. If you have a question about your yoga practice or a suggestion for a guest, please email me at rebecca at homebodiesyoga.com. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Homebodies Yoga Podcast. To find out more about each show, please go to our website, homebodiesyoga.com. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And by the way, if you're listening somewhere where rating and reviewing isn't possible, um, like Spotify, you can always go to Apple. I know it's an extra step, so it's kind of annoying, but you can always go over to Apple and rate and review there. Um, Apple is kind of like the big funnel point for finding new um, listeners. So that would be a great place to rate and review uh, so that more people can find the show. And I would really appreciate it probably talk about your review on the show because that's how excited I get every time I get a review. (sighs) So my practice this week has been really interesting. Um, Well, I guess my practice lately has been really interesting. I, um, about a week and a half ago, I got the COVID vaccine, the Moderna, the first shot. And since my arm has been pretty sore and a little weak, like it actually feels fine when I'm like sitting down or, or, you know, not moving it. But when I put weight on it, like in Chaturanga or Plank or something, or even Down Dog, it just feels like my body is like, "Mm, this is a bad idea. Like I'll hold you up here, but this doesn't seem prudent. So I haven't been, which I actually really like sometimes when there's like a, I don't know, a a reason in my body or something that I need to adjust my practice. Um, Like it just keeps you more awake because you can't do the things you always do. So like, you know, you guys know I love sun salutations. So for my sun salutes lately, because I can't do vinyasas, I've been doing a lot of um, chair pose, a lot of squats to kind of find the breath and warm up. And then I've been, you know, stepping forward and stepping back into lunges and things with no hands which really gets you in your legs. And really, actually, I've been noticing I've been using my core a lot. And that, to me, uh, always feels good. I feel like uh, working my legs and like strengthening my legs makes me feel just like really rooted and grounded. I mean, I'm sure it's partly like just like psychosomatic, but who cares? Like I've I've been feeling like much more, yeah, yeah, like rooted to the ground, like less kind of like thoughts all over the place floaty. So I always appreciate that. So that's been really fun. And I just feel like, yeah, it it like makes you more awake when you can't do things you always do them. Like I've been just more present with my body and more, I don't know, kind of like um, experimental in my practice, which I don't know, is always fun, I guess. Um, Yeah. And just been feeling really good that I have the ball rolling on getting this vaccine. Um, Yeah, it's definitely helped. This whole pandemic has made me think of ahimsa in a new light, which, you know, I think the yoga sutras are sort of made that way that like, throughout life, you like understand, you know, they're vague enough, they're specific, specific, but like vague enough that like, you can kind of see them differently throughout your life and like add on meaning to them. And one meaning that's definitely come for me is this idea that like, oh, when I'm sick, and I'm not taking care of myself by staying home, like, you know, before when I would have a cold and go on the train or like feel fluey, but like still teach my class, like that's actually not taking care of the people around me. Like not only is it not taking care of myself, like, okay, that's one thing. But then the other thing is like the idea that I could get someone sick is, uh, so much more in the front of my mind now. Um, which I think is good. Uh, I definitely am like going to, probably still have a mask you know when I'm not feeling well or who knows maybe we'll all wear a mask always on public transit I really don't know um yeah it could be as a big part of this uh pandemic for me has been that I feel not so afraid that I'll get COVID um because I'm 35 I'm pretty healthy I'm you know middle class I'm white I have health insurance like I'm you know, not only do I think I'd probably be okay if I got it, I ha- I know I can go to the doctor, I know I can afford treatment, I know that I'll be, 
treated a certain way, you know, by the med- my medical team because I'm white. You know, there's this, like so many layers of privilege here. I don't even need to get into them all with you right now. But I think that um, my, my main fear, my point is my main fear has been that I'd give it to someone else, you know, who, who didn't have such privilege or, or did, but whatever, like can't get sick. You know, I, the idea that I could harm someone else with my very germs is just terrifying to me that, you know, I'd find out I had COVID and realize I went to target when I didn't really need something. And that, you know, who knows who, who could have gotten it from me there and like what could have happened or that, you know, I'd accidentally give it to my husband who has asthma or my husband's parents. Um, yeah. So I've just, I'm just so thankful to like be able to do one small part to like not <laughs> spread my germs, I guess, in one case. Um, yeah, it's been kind of interesting to me seeing uh, people who think of themselves or, or call themselves yogis who aren't interested in getting the vaccine, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I totally can understand the perspective of not quite trusting science. Like, you know, uh, science is great, but also science created nuclear weapons and uh, science and pharmaceutical companies are the cause of the opioid crisis. So, like, I get it. Um, I guess to me, it is like the risk of maybe the vaccine having something, uh, having a bad reaction in the vaccine versus the risk of like getting someone else really sick is, I don't know, it's just so clear to me that like you would err on the side of taking the risk, the small risk. But I know there's like all kinds of like conspiracy theories, which I'm not, <laughs> I'm not well versed in enough to even get into. Um, yeah, I'll just, I guess, leave it at that. Um, I, uh, our guest today, I really enjoyed talking to, and I was trying to put into thought why. Her name is Melanie Green. She is a yoga instructor and yoga studio owner in Berkeley, California. I actually have never met her in person. Um, she was recommended by Dia Penning. And I was been trying to think, like, why I, I mean, like, she's, very, very smart, very, very wise. But I had a certain feeling when I talked to her that I couldn't pinpoint. And I realized like she really reminds me of my grandmother and not in like a, she's like an old lady way. Like my grandmother was not, I don't know she wasn't, my grandmother wasn't like a knitting, not that there's anything wrong with the grandmother that does that, but Melanie is not like grandmotherly in, in the way you think of grandmothers and neither was my grandmother. And Melanie is also not old enough to be a grandmother, but um, that's a whole that's not what I mean. I don't mean like age wise, but what I mean is, um, let me get to the point. Uh, so my grandmother, uh, Constance Hewlett, I was very, very close to, uh, she, when she was a very devout Catholic, like her whole life, very devoted to the Catholic church. And, you know, when in her forties or fifties, she, uh, everything came out about, um, the, uh, sex abuse that priests were doing to children and the way that the church was covering it up. And my grandmother basically washed her hands of the church right then and there. She, which I so wish I had asked her about or, or that I could still ask her about because it must have been a real crisis of faith for her, right? It was part of her identity and her culture and just like who she was, you know, was a Catholic. And then all of a sudden that's gone. So for my whole childhood, or, you know, I have a lot of memories in my early childhood of my grandmother kind of researching and learning about other religions. Like I can remember going to her house and she'd talk about paganism and what she was learning and we'd do rituals. And I can remember, you know, her learning about Hinduism. I remember her reading about Judaism, like just kind of searching for another faith or another philosophy and she ended up settling on Buddhism and she really, you know, went in completely, devoted her life to Buddhism. Like once she decided that was for her, she, you know, was going to um, the monastery very often. She was working with a Buddhist teacher. She was meditating all the time, you know, twice a day. I can remember like sleeping over at her house and she'd be meditating after I went to bed, like if I came downstairs or something. Um... And there's something in that, you know, that Melanie has this, like, I don't, you know, I don't know Melanie's story about religion before she found yoga, but Melanie is also all in, in, um, the tenets of the yoga practice and the yoga sutras. Like she, I don't know. I feel like there's this 
way in which I and, and a lot of people I know, a lot of other yoga teachers are sort of like half in, half out, or, you know, like we practice yoga and we like talk about yoga, but like basically it hasn't, I don't know, I'm not sure like as much as I believe that the yoga sutras are a good way to live, I'm not sure they've like completely changed who I am yet. Like I, I feel like maybe I use the sutras to apply to things I already believe, confirm things I already believe. But Melanie and my grandmother both had this way of like, have this way of like really allowing uh, their lives to be changed by something they learn, which yeah, it's like uh, kind of the opposite of being jaded. Like, it's not naive, right? It's something different. It's like this, uh, I don't know, this openness to change and, and, th- but this willingness to also be devoted, like open-minded and also devoted. And, and I don't know. It's hard for me to verbalize it clearly. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't know. They just, she really reminds me of my grandmother in that way. And um, talking to her, it was really just great to hear because she, you know, her kids are a little bit older than my son is and, well, much older. And her, you know, I think they're in their teen years and my son is two. And it, she's just lived life as a yogi longer than I have. So, like, um, we talked a lot about how, you know, the yoga sutras can apply to parenthood and how she's like based her business and, and her, her professional life, you know, are also examples of her devote devotion to the yoga sutras and the tenets of the yoga of yoga in general. Um, which, yeah, it was just really great to hear someone one that it's like working for and two, just, just to, I don't know, get advice about things like that, to hear that filter. Um, yeah, I really, really enjoyed talking to her. Um, yeah, she just also has just so much knowledge, um, both live knowledge and kind of like intellectual knowledge about yoga. And I definitely, I like already, I was listening to the interview and I was like, gosh, there's so much more I want to ask her. So we'll definitely have her on the show again. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this, but she is an Ashtanga per, um teacher and practitioner so um especially if you like ashtanga i think you'll really like this um episode uh and her classes if you practice ashtanga you really need to practice with her i took i got to take one class with her since my arm has been a little sore um but the class i took was really great she really really sees students like she definitely saw me even through the screen uh so if you're a teacher that's another uh, reason I think you'd really like this episode. She is a really good way of, I don't know, her philosophy about teaching is also really good. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed her class. I also, I think there's something about, she talks about this a lot, but the structure of the Ashtanga practice, uh, there's a freedom in it. Like a, in a way, it makes it more calming. And she ha- definitely, you know, has this sense of warmth, but she also really sets the boundaries of the practice of Ashtanga when she's teaching you, which I don't know, it's kind of nice. <laughs> Feels sort of that in, in, you know, in those boundaries, of course, there's freedom. So yeah, here is Melanie Green. Well, welcome, Melanie Green. So excited to welcome you today. Um, Melanie Green is a co-director and co-owner of the Berkeley Yoga Center, and she is a longtime yoga practitioner and instructor. So I'm very excited to welcome you. Um, Thank you so much. Of course. Thanks for being here. Can we get started just talking about your history with yoga? Yeah. So this actually marks the 30th year that I've been practicing. I, I started practicing yoga in Austin, Texas, the first time I took a yoga class. And I think like most people, I entered the class because of the body. You know, I wanted to work on some body stuff specifically for me. I have scoliosis and I um, was in a bit of pain throughout my teenage years that sometimes was a lot of pain. And I had gone, I went through all kinds of different um, treatments for my scoliosis. And the next thing was going to be surgery. And I was in college and I sought out um, a chiropractor and um, this was in the 90s and this was in Texas and chiropractors were not um, 
looked highly upon by my mom. And, but, you know, I tended to find my own path with most things in life. And basically the chiropractor said, you know, I want you to take this video home and look at what surgery is going to be like. And then I also want you to try this thing called yoga. I'd never heard of yoga before. And I took my first yoga class and um, it was in a huge gymnasium. And it was the first time in my life that I ever thought about connecting with my body from, uh, from the inside, not what it looked like. Um, not, you know, how did it look in, in the reflection of somebody else's eyes or the reflection of my own eyes, but really what did it feel like inside? What did it feel like to have my feet on the ground? What did it feel like to have my arm raised in the air? And I was an athlete. I had been a swimmer. Um, I had played soccer. I had been a runner. But there was something really different for me about this new experience. And um, I decided not to have the surgery for my scoliosis. And that really launched my entry into, into yoga. And it was just Hatha yoga, you know, and um, slowly over different life experiences and different opportunities, I've made my way to Ashtanga yoga, which is what I currently practice and teach. Um, I also taught prenatal and postnatal yoga for almost two decades. And I'm also trained as a doula and a nutritionist and work with people um, to heal life through food and yoga and meditation kind of in a nutshell. And so that it sounds like your sort of entry into this maybe more alternative way of finding wellness or certainly alternative then was through yoga Mm -hmm. then. Yeah. So when did you become a doula? Because that's also, a. I mean, I feel like I only heard about doulas maybe five years ago. So when I was pregnant with my son, who's now 19, he's a freshman in college at an odd time to be a freshman in college. Um, I, I started teaching prenatal yoga when I was pregnant with him. Um, really because I, for, so for me teaching yoga, I never set out to be a yoga teacher. Um, I, it's a kind of an interesting story about how I became a yoga teacher. I, one of my yoga teachers was sick and the, the owner of the studio was going to cancel class. And somebody turned and was like, Melanie, you should teach today. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give that a try. And it, it was like this um, pivotal moment in my life where I feel like I was struck with some divine light. Like I still, it still gives me chills today when I think about it because I, I had taught swimming. So I knew what it was like to teach something that was about the body. But the moment I started teaching yoga, something just, you know, really became clear to me that this was a path I was supposed to be on. I'd already, I had my master's degree in women's studies by this point and thought that I would focus on something um, related to women's health. And in women's studies, I took this whole course on birthing and the history of birthing. And it blew my mind about how for years and years and years, women birthed with other women in their homes. And it wasn't until um, doctors decided it wasn't safe that women started moving into birthing in the way that lots of women birth today in the hospital. And so when I was in that class, I remember thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to have a baby at home. And, um, I did, I had both my kids at home. And when I was pregnant with my son, I did a training to be a doula. And it was, a it was, a um, Judith Lassiter. I don't know if you've heard of her. She's a mm-hmm. long time Iyengar teacher. So she joined forces with a midwife and they taught this amazing, like in-depth training that was, um, both how to be a prenatal and postnatal yoga teacher as well as a doula. And then in order to be a doula, you had to, you had to go a little bit further in terms of um, practicing with women and, and learning how to, you know, assist them in birth. And so that was about 20 years ago. And, um, and the two for me just really connected the yoga, the breath, the body with birthing and parenting. 
Yeah, I, f- I really feel like that was also my, what you said about the first time being in your body. I had this such a similar experience with my yoga practice. Like I, it was the first time I considered my body as something that could make me feel better. And it wasn't just for other people to look at. Cause I wasn't an athlete, but I was like, I don't know, very influenced by, by the culture I was in, which was to like look a certain way mm. and for others. So yep. um, that really speaks to me, that practice. And then I feel like for me, then that awareness of my body made me more interested in things like nutrition or more interested in, you know, how I wanted to birth my son or more interest. It kind of like opened up all these different doors. Yeah. Um, and um, now that I'm looking at being a parent, because once you have an infant, I feel like an infant. Because you are a parent. Because I, I am a parent, but I'm looking yeah. at being a parent differently <laughs> because an infant is like, you just feed them and you take care of them and yeah. it's different. But now I'm like, okay, how, how does a yogi be a parent? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I know that your children are older and you've been through this. So how have you been, have you thought about it? <laughs> yeah. You know, I really find that the eight limbs are, um, are kind of my, the way that I parent, like the way that I, mm-hmm. so the way that I teach and the way that I am in the world are the same. So what I teach on the mat, what I teach in class is the same when I walk off the mat. I have a very, for me, there's no separation, um, which is not true for a a lot of folks, right? They go and do this thing that's a yoga practice and then they roll up their mat and then they're something else. So for me, it was a natural um, movement into, you know, how do I want to be in the world? How do I want to hold myself and how do I want to hold my kids? And it's not always been easy um, because I, so what I find is that the practice, the yoga practice, the asana practice is like this really steady container that we step into and out of. And that this container gives us a chance to know like what the structure is and that within that structure, there is freedom. And I have found that a lot of times as parents, we think that freedom means no container. But in actuality, the way that we provide freedom for our children is that they know what the container is. So ever since my kids were little, I would say to them, your job is to test the container and my job is to hold it steady. Mm-hmm. Not with anger, not with expectation, but just to be steady so that they can um you know, knock into every which way, but they know that they're safe within this container of, of being a parent. And what is difficult is that's not the way that most people do it. And so my kids, you know, and I also, it's funny because I, I taught my kids to have a voice, you know, that they're always allowed to say what they like, what they don't like, what doesn't work for them and what works for them. And we can always have a conversation and as the, as their mom, I'm going to still kind of hold that boundary and that they're going to keep going up against it. And, and when you have teenagers and, you know, my daughter just recently said, you taught me this mom, I know it's hard for you that I'm pushing against you. And yet you taught me to have this voice. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. I did. You know? (laughs) Um, so I, you know, I'm thinking of, um, Um, the yamas, like do no harm. So I come from a Texas background where it's a, it's very much um, you do what I say, not what I do, right? That's kind of old school parenting. And I felt like I wanted to parent as a role model. So I wanted to teach my children that no matter what happened, I would never do any harm. I would never harm them. I would never harm myself. And that in that means that there's a lot of, a lot of discomfort that we have to learn to tolerate. And because of the way that kids are now with um, access to everything, right. Through smartphones, through the computers, through all of our technology, our kids don't learn to manage discomfort. So I felt like part of my job was to teach them that was like, okay, you, I hear you. You're really mad because you want this. And so we're going to just sit in this together. We're going to just sit in what it's like 
to want that thing and to not have that thing. And so it's a limitless amount of patience required. Um, there's also one of the um, eight limbs, one of the yamas, it's about self-study, about looking inward. Um, and honestly, is it a yama or a niyama? Yeah. So it's, it's the ability to look in, you know, it's the ability to um, say, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? So to say to our kids, I don't know. And the challenge with that is they have a, my kids anyway, at the ages that they are, they have a phone, they can look it up, you know? And so there's this interesting shift that's happened in our kids because they can access at some point, they can access more than we actually know. Um, And so all the work that we do in yoga to look at the ego, um, to look at our truth, to look at the way that we are disciplined, to look at the way that we are attached or unattached, to look at our level of honesty, to look at our um, grasping. All of that is is a perfect um, template for parenting to do that deep work. Um, There's a great book, you might've heard of it called Everyday Blessings. It's not a yoga book, but it's by John and Myla Kabat-Zinn, Everyday Blessings. And it's um, from a Buddhist perspective. And it's real. it's not like a parenting manual, but it's, it's about parenting. And it's in this really beautiful way of looking at our children as our teachers and looking at what am I supposed to learn from this little human? You know, what am I supposed to learn from this, you know, school age child, or what am I supposed to learn from this teenager? And what I've found is when I'm deeply looking and listening, everything that my kids come up with every um, difficulty is a, is something that's really familiar to me, Hmm. whether it was at that age, you know, or, or um, something happened to me when I was that age. So it, it creates, difficulty in parenting. It's like this constant coming back. Who am I? Who am I? How do I hold myself? How do I show up in life? How do I be a role model for my kids? Um, And, you know, they've been around yoga their whole lives. And for me, I, I didn't want yoga to be this thing that they always saw me leaving to go and do. Like, oh, mom goes and does this thing. And she always has to leave when she goes and does this thing. And so I practiced around them throughout their whole lives. Um, And when they were little, it meant that they were crawling on me and under me and over me and around me. And it meant that I would stop and start and stop and start. But that was the fabric of my life. My life didn't just stop when I decided to do yoga. It continued. And so I've never made my kids do yoga at different times in their lives, they've come in or out of it. I've taught yoga um, in their classrooms all through middle, all through um, elementary and through the beginning of middle school. Um, I taught yoga to the Berkeley high mountain bike team, which my son was on. So he still got yoga through that. Um, But, you know, I would never make anyone do yoga. So as much as I really want my children to do yoga and be yogis, that's got to be their own path. Um, so I just went on about a bunch of different things, but, um, yeah, it was really interesting hearing you. Well, there are so many things that you said were really interesting. The first one is personally, I found that the reason that I'm more becoming more interested in having kind of a philosophy of parenting is I think if you don't have a philosophy, you just do what you learned. Even if I, you know, I thought like, okay, like, whatever, here I am, I'm my own person, my own parent. But the minute, I feel like the minute I'm like frustrated, I react in, you know, in a way I've learned. Um, So So I think one of the most helpful limbs for parenting is Pratyahara, just mm -hmm. exactly what you're saying. So if you don't have a philosophy, you're going to react. And that reaction is either going to be what you learned or the opposite of what you learned. Mm -hmm. But it's not going to be what you intentionally want to do unless you cultivate pratyahara, which is that pause, which is that moving away from all the senses, everything that pulls us into distraction, taking a breath and literally creating space 
between what just happened and how I'm going to be, how I'm going to hold this. And that's such a brilliant thing to teach. I think a teenager, a child, an adult is that to let them see you take a pause even. Cause a lot of the time it feels to me like it's so important to react immediately, but it's, it's not actually right. Isn't it such yeah. a good lesson to learn to pause before you act? Absolutely. It's that, it's that slowing down. And, you know, because if some, if your child does something and you immediately react, they're no longer sitting with what they've just done. They're sitting with your reaction. Mm-hmm. But if you pause, they sit in their own, whatever, you know, whether it's a decision they made or something they knocked over or a tantrum they had or what, depending on the age. But when we pause and kind of hold that space, they're in themselves. The moment we react, they're no longer in them. They're in us. They're now like, oh, I got to manage mom because she's angry or out of control. And, you know, when my kids were little and they, they were, I found them very challenging. I would even say to them, you know, I would talk about Pratyahara and then, but in those moments I would say, I'm feeling, I'm feeling angry and I'm, I'm creating a pause right now so that we all have a chance to diffuse. And if whatever whatever they were doing didn't stop, my voice is going to get louder. Mm. And so I would name that with them and they would be like, oh yeah. Okay. So here we have a choice. We can listen to what mom's saying and take our own pause, or we can choose to keep doing it. And mom's voice is going to get louder. And sometimes they would keep doing it. And then we'd have to take another pause, you know, but giving them a chance to see that, it's, it's a, it's a relationship. Um, and that really what we, I find that what I really wanted to teach my kids was to be in touch with their own pause, to learn that when they have that pit in their stomach, I mean, and they, they started learning this when they were little. I mean, I would have moms come up to me when my kids were in preschool and ask, how did you teach your kids to be so in touch with their emotions? Like you ask them how they feel and they tell you. And I'm like, well, I started asking them how they feel, you know, (laughs) and I started also having them talk about where that was in their body. You know, where do you feel that in my belly or in my chest or in my throat? And then connecting um, how they felt in their body to how they felt in their emotions and then what's going on, you know, like different situations call on different experiences in the body. I really wanted my kids to know their bodies. Hmm. Yeah. And that's such a, that aware, it's like two things. It's like awareness and then the ability to self-regulate, right. Which are like two really big yogic principles. Yeah. And you know, I, um, so I teach and practice Ashtanga Vinyasa yoga, which is a really intense style. And, um, and, I, and for a long time, I ta- taught prenatal and postnatal alongside that. And so I'd often have students who were pre and post move into studying Ashtanga with me or Ashtanga students become pregnant and then, you know, do both. And in a traditional um, kind of Ashtanga mindset, you practice six days a week, you do your whole practice, and that's how there's some kind of value in it. And as soon as I was probably eight months in or less into my pregnancy, I thought, who made, who made this rule again? Because this doesn't work. You know, this, this is not valuing me in this practice. This is valuing some kind of theoretical model, but not, not the human Melanie. And what I found is I have students who will come to me after studying with you know, a traditional teacher, which I do teach traditional Ashtanga, but they would feel like I, I can't do that anymore. I, I can't practice for an hour and a half, six days a week. So I'm just going to quit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, Oh no, there's, there's a middle path. You know, you might practice for 20 minutes and do Surya Namaskara A and B in the morning. And then maybe midday you come back and you do a few standing poses 
And then maybe at the end of the day, you do some seated poses. And then before you go to bed, maybe you do your inversions. And that's the practice that's in your life. That's the practice that's real for you as a mom. Or maybe it wasn't because you were parenting. Maybe it was because you were you just had a big loss in your life. Or maybe because you, you know, just had a big change. But my belief about how we do yoga in order to make it sustainable is that we have to adjust the practice to nourish us and not deplete us. Because yoga is meant as a spiritual practice. It's meant to lift us up, to to help us get a better connection with our higher self. And if we're depleted, we can't actually hear what's going to come through from our higher self or God or divine or universe or spirit or however you connect with it. And so I would get really sad because I would have women come and they would be like, yeah, I, you know, I have this teacher and they've said to me, if I'm not going to practice five days a week in the Mysore room, I can't do Ashtanga anymore. And I was like, yeah, I do it differently. And, you know, we've got to find, we, you've got to find a teacher that supports you. You, Every single person that practices yoga has to find a teacher that sees them. And for me, I think that's the biggest gift I offer my students is to see them, to see each individual person, what, what, what's filling them, what's depleting them, what's on their minds, what's in their life so that they can have a practice that they can drop into that then that then you go from and that supports your whole life. It makes you a better mom. It makes you a better partner. It makes you a better podcast person. <laughs> it makes you, you know, that you get to dip into this pure light of awareness and out of the critic. Because as soon as we bring that critic into our practice, we've lost that connection to our higher self because there is no critic in our higher self. There's only love and support and kindness. Did you have any fear when you first realized, like, I don't want to follow the very traditional ways? Only because I, th- I think I, I I did at first when I was like, oh, I'm only going to practice 20 minutes, or I had like almost like no one can see me, but uh, this like fear. Did you have a sense of that, or do, did you just have a, such a sense of self that didn't happen? Fear, um, fear for my own personal like practice and the value of that or fear as a teacher? I think, but yeah, both. Both. Um, absolutely. I don't know that I'd call it fear. I would call it doubt. Mm-hmm. I would have a certain amount of self-doubt when I, so here I am teaching this, right? And then I would come up against my own personal wall and I'd be like, huh, Melanie, how about you cultivate what you teach? Mm. So I'd be like, Oh, wow, this is something. This is revolutionary, right? To be listening to your body and to adjust your practice based on your energy and your body, that's revolutionary. But that's the way it's meant to be. So absolutely, there was doubt. And I just trusted and did it anyway. Mm. You know, there we have brought this very Western idea into yoga, which is it's this or that it's black or white. It's good or bad. This, this duality. Um, And if we think about, you know, the practice of asana was to get us more comfortable in the body so that we could sit longer to have spiritual liberation. That's really the purpose of asana so that we have more purity so that we have more ability to be spiritual beings. So if you can step back, if I can step back and look and remember that it's not about it. It's, I mean, we have built, so I started teaching yoga before this yoga industry that we have today was here. I taught at a time when there was, there weren't really teacher trainings or certifications. Um, My teacher was like, Oh, you subbed for me last week. Everybody loved it. I'm going to start training you. I want you to assist me. And I was like, okay. And that's how I started teaching. There weren't really yoga clothes. Um, There was like one kind of yoga mat. 
And now we've built a multi-billion dollar industry telling people that in order to do yoga, you have to have all these things, which is where that self-doubt comes in, right? Like if I get on my mat and I don't do the prescribed X, Y, and Z, somehow it's not real or valuable or enough. But that's not yoga. That is, that's this, that's marketing, (laughs) you know? Um, and it has, it, it causes me great pain and sadness to see that that's what's happened. And on the other hand, millions of people are doing it. And I think that's really good. And my experience is that people who stick around yoga, eventually it becomes something that's not about the body. Like we practice yoga and use the body to learn that we are not in essence, the body right? We are something so much deeper. Um, and yet we, we use this body to learn how to be uncomfortable, how to withstand breath, how to use our breath, how to open and change our nervous system. But essentially the body is temporary, right? The body is, um, the way that we are able-bodied is temporary. Yeah, I'll never get bored of that contradiction of like the more present you are in the body, the less you are your body. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I, it's, um, I think it's the magic, like part definitely part of the magic of yoga. It's, I don't know, it's the it's what makes it different than, you know, say a different, act, you know, a different physical right. activity. Yeah. Um, is it, I'm like so struck by your ability to, have this practice that's like on and off the mat. Has that always been the case for you? Did you go back and study philosophy or is it has always been part of it for you? So I think it's the way I am in mm. the world. But in 1999, I was in a yoga teacher training that was this on paper, the most like brilliant for me yoga training that I could imagine. It combined Ashtanga yoga with, with Iyengar yoga, with Vini yoga. It was kind of Krishnamacharya, the, all the lineages of Krishnamacharya. Um, it included meditation and it was like a two-year program about, and it also had a, a component, um, I, like I said, meditation, but it was specifically Vipassana meditation. And so one of the requirements is we had to go and do a 10 to 12 day silent sit in a Vipassana training, which was again, life-changing. And I did that in 1999 and about four months into the training and people moved their lives from all over the world to be in this training. We had, there were students from Brazil and Australia and Greece and Germany and Spain and also the United States. We showed up to the studio and there was a sign on the door that said studio closed. And to make a long story short, the person that owned the studio left town, had all of our financial money and left. And I had this moment and I, I, I think I wrote about it in one of my blogs. I I never specifically talk about what happened because that's really not the point of it. But I had this moment where I was like, oh, there are people who practice yoga that aren't yogis. Mm. I had no idea. I, I mean, it sounds so naive when I think now, but I really, I really thought if you signed up and did this as your life, and this is what you were teaching and holding you did this in all parts of your life. Like I just, my idea was that yoga was not just this physical thing. It was, it was a whole thing. Um, and that for me, I was like, that's, I was shocked. I was shook, I guess is the word. I really was shook. Like, how is this possible? I thought, I thought humans were different that did yoga. Hmm. And then I was like, oh, we're still human though. We still make mistakes. We still bring all of the stuff we do in the world, right? 
just because you do yoga doesn't mean you're not racist. Doesn't mean you're not, you don't um, necessarily question your own privilege or you're not um, biased or you're not holding all of the crap, right? That we come in with, but somehow I, I thought it was going to be different. And so I had to really look at who I was anytime, right? We have something where we think things going to be a certain way and we realize it's not. I had a choice to get to search deeper into how I wanted to do this or to say, oh, this is just one more thing that's not real and just say, forget it. And so I chose to go deeper. And another thing that happened for me was I was traveling in Bali and this was also in the nineties. And I asked somebody if, if they would show me where I could go do yoga. And they were like, do yoga? Like as if you could do yoga, you know, they said, you mean asana? And I was like, oh yeah, there's asana. And then there's yoga, right? Yoga is this way that we embrace of a view of ourselves in the world. It's practicing the eight limbs. It's cultivating all of this on the mat and off the mat. But asana are these physical postures that we do. And so those two things at a, at a, in my twenties, you know, they had both happened in my twenties. They really, um, yeah, just caused me to do deep reflection on, on how I wanted to be in this thing called yoga. And I think because I didn't, I, I got, it's almost like, I feel like I stepped into it in the middle and I didn't really prepare. I didn't really know what I was doing. And so I just thought this is what everybody did. So I don't know if that answers your question, but. No, it does. Um, but it actually brought up another one. How, um, how do you, I, uh, how can I ask this? I, I feel like being a, an owner of any business is challenging, especially challenging for someone who wants to bring yoga philosophy into their life because we live in capitalism, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so how has being a yogi influenced also being an owner of the Berkeley Yoga Center? That's a great question. So Sabelle, she's the, um, she and I own the studio together and she and I met when we were pregnant with our sons and became business owners together pretty soon after that. She, she had just bought the Berkeley yoga center from the founders. There were these three women who founded the Berkeley yoga center in 1997. And she and I both at that time and now are really clear that we are yogis first. And so we run the business in the least capitalist way for better or worse. Um, we don't sell anything. It's not fancy. It's a, it's a big, beautiful room with clear walls and a clear floor. Um, there's nothing on the walls and we rent space to teachers so that instead of students paying us the studio students pay teachers because we really feel like yoga is meant to be transmitted from teacher to student and to keep that line clean and clear that the student would pay the teacher directly and that then the teacher would pay rent. So whether the teacher has a full packed house or a few students, the rent's the same. And so the challenges for new teachers, because when they're trying to build their their self as a yoga teacher, it's more challenging, but we really felt like we wanted to just pay the bills and not make money off of people's teaching, but we wanted to have kind of a set a n- number uh, so that we could pay the rent and the insurance and the electricity and et cetera. Um, when we got, when the pandemic came, um, no teachers were in our studio, right? Cause we were all in shelter in place, which when we had, which meant we had zero income. So we went from having rent to having nothing. And we still kind of searched our souls and decided we're going to keep this model because we feel like 
it keeps it about yoga instead of about a business. It's, it's like a container, really. Um, and we have had some of our yoga teachers keep paying us a little bit over the, over the months because they're teaching all online and they want us to stick around to get through the pandemic. We've also had our amazing landlords charge us a period of time, half rent. Um, but we have everybody I know who owns a business says, Melanie, you, you're doing it backwards. Like, you could be making so much more money. Um, and we just feel that committed that we really want a place where we can teach, other people can teach, where we can pay the bills um, and that we are able to, you know, my livelihood is teaching yoga and being a wellness um, mentor coach, um, but it's not from the business. It's from my actual one-on-one -on -one teaching, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So we've kind of stayed really old school <laughs> um, and it aligns with me and my heart. Um, and sometimes I question like, you know, how am I going to retire? But <laughs> it's, um, it feels like the, 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 you know, yoga is meant to be given and if people can afford it, great. And if people can't, they, I tell them to come anyway, because I feel like it, it always works out. Like what, what I provide, I'm going to provide no matter what. And if there's somebody there that can't afford it, there's somebody else that can afford more. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how Sabelle and I, the spirit that we have continued to run the Berkeley Yoga Center with. And that's why we've stayed small. You know, we, for a while, we were able to have two studios and grow a bit. But, um, but it seems to work. So we've been doing this together since 2001 or 2002, so close to 20 years. Um, she and I are, she, she, we're very different in terms of our styles. Um, of yoga. She teaches Vinny yoga and yin yoga. Um, but our hearts are very much in line with, with yoga philosophy, I guess, being like the mission of being a yogi. Hmm. It's so, I mean, it's so good to hear that it's, that it in, in, in enough, it's working. It's so good to hear that I don't know. It's inspiring as someone who's not quite sure what I'm doing as a yoga instructor or I don't know. Um, yeah. You uh, know, I think as a yoga instructor, um, if you keep teaching what you know, if you teach what is in alignment with your higher self, you will, the, the, like that, that vibration will, people will come to that. Um, I, I, I think that yoga is something that's so, you know, you, you can train forever, but what makes you a yoga teacher is something deeper than the training because it's, it's like your humanity. It's who you are inside. That is really going to be what it is to speak to your students. You know, I, I remember David Swenson once said, we actually, instead of training yoga teachers, we need to train students how to find a trustworthy yoga teacher. Like mm -hmm. that's what we need to be doing more of because um, we, our students need to be discerning, you know? And if, if, if we as teachers can show up and teach authentically, like what we're actually living, the um, the depth that we're able to go and the way we're able to make a connection is just so much deeper than if we teach this thing that's up here in our mind. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. And this will be the last question because I know you have to go, but I, it brings you to this question where it's like very clear to me from talking to Dia and from talking to you that you really see your students, like you see them. How how did you cultivate that, that ability to see? It's a great question. I, as a very young person, 
I was a person that people came to to share their stories. And I, I think I started learning how to deeply listen, not connected to yoga, but just as a person. And I think I carried that deep ability to listen to my teaching. Mm-hmm. So when I, and this has been something that I'm really missing from teaching on a screen, because part of what I'm listening to is the sound of people's breath and the sound that's even under the breath. And I'm watching for um, something in people's eyes, you know, just the the way they show me what's behind the eyes. Um, And I'm, I'm really listening to how somebody enters a room, how somebody hangs up their coat, how somebody sits on their yoga mat, how somebody transitions in between one pose or another pose. Um, I'm watching the emotion that rises and falls. Um, I'm watching for the wobble that happens in somebody's ankle or in somebody's knee or in somebody's shoulder. And the more and more that I practice that, the more and more I can see. And when I, for a long time in my teaching, if a student came to me with an ailment, I would feel that ailment. And in the beginning, it was really exciting. And then I couldn't sustain it. I couldn't sustain feeling everything that my students felt. And I, I had to learn how to have this internal um, separation <laughs> of, of like, that's yours, you know, not out loud, but like, that's yours. This is mine. I want to see you and honor you, but I don't want to feel every bit of pain that you're feeling. So I had to learn how to do that. So part of it, I think, is, you know, somebody told me once that those of us who are yogis, it's because of something that's happened in our past, like past maybe lives or, or like old, old, old stuff. And so... It's almost like we have to, um, you know how, what's your, what's your little person's name? Hudson. Hudson. Have you, does Hudson put his head under the water? Does he ever go like in a bath and mm-hmm. go under? Have you ever watched Hudson when he comes out of the bath and how he has this sense of clarity? Like there's something that's been washed away. I feel like the more that I teach yoga, the more that the, the film on my eyes gets washed away. It's like I keep being brought out of a bath or out mm-hmm. of a shower, you know, and I just keep being able to see. Um, and I think that seeing is one of the biggest gifts that we can give people. Seeing what is comfortable and seeing what is uncomfortable. You know, I when there is difficulty going on in the world, like there has been for so long, I speak to it when I teach, you know, when there's racist violence going on, um, I have people of color in my classroom or not. Sometimes I speak to that. I speak to our, our job as yogis, how to be allies, um, how to question white supremacy, how to look at our privilege as white yoga teachers, Um, I look at how we use the eight limbs to do that work. And I watch how people respond. A lot of people are really uncomfortable and a lot of people are really grateful. And so I, I don't judge in terms of criticism, but I keep nudging people because I really feel like we all have this, um, bright light of pure awareness inside of us, but it gets muddied. And, and it gets damaged because of the color of our skin or the size of our body or our upbringing or our religion or our heartbreak. And so here we are trying to see, but we're looking through like fogged glasses. And so if I'm trying to see you and you're trying to see me, but there's no clarity, it's really hard to see each other. So it's like every time we do yoga, it's like dipping a cloth and cleaning our glasses, you know, over and over and over again. 
That's uh, that's like my favorite yoga sutra uh, that about that bright light in every person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's deep. Yeah. Um, I could talk to you forever, but I really want to be, um, I'm so grateful for your time. So I want to be totally uh, end on time. Um, so can you just end by telling everyone where they can find you? I'm sure they're going to be interested in yeah. hearing more from you. I um, I would love to, to talk about how, one of the things I think that I have really done and tried to do is create a, a space for people to do Ashtanga at all levels and all, mm. all backgrounds and um, to make it accessible. And, you know, I didn't really get to speak much on that, but um, people can find me at the Berkeley Yoga Center. My website is um, melyoga.com. And the website for my yoga studio is berkeleyyogacenter.com. And I teach right now all on Zoom. And I also support people with wellness through food and meditation and yoga and lifestyle. Um, Dia and I are actually excited. We're going to be teaching a class together on July 6th. It's a Tuesday at 1030. It's an hour and 15 minute class. And it's for women. Um, anybody who identifies as female is welcome. And it's... Um, I can't remember the name of it, but it's going to be um, about the body and about how to be in our bodies and in yoga. And we're going to incorporate yin and ashtanga. And we're just in the planning stages, but we're super excited. Um, we're doing it as an offering um, for um, a camp. It's called Casadero family camp but it's an online class so it's going to actually be open to anyone who wants to take the class and it's a it's on a donation um i have a, a workshop coming up next month that's the primary series and the second series of ashtanga so it's really for folks who are already practicing ashtanga but one of my favorite classes i teach is a beginning ashtanga class and i try to make it really available for anyone who wants to learn the system i mean i think that Ashtanga is an amazing practice, not for everyone, but for anyone who is interested. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Oh, awesome. Well, um, I already put the July 6th in my calendar because that sounds like such a wonderful day. I'm so yeah, happy it's on it's, Zoom. <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be really, really fun. So I'll, I'll, it'll be, it's not up yet, but if you look on Dia's website or mine, you'll find it Great. or just send me an email. Great. Yeah. yeah. And we'll put, we'll post everything in the show notes and um, on Instagram. And thank you so much for coming. This was wonderful. Yeah. You're so welcome. <laughs> yeah. It was so great to meet you and hope we can talk again. Yeah. I hope so too. I'd love to talk more about the way you teach Ashtanga. We didn't even get into that <laughs> No. <laughs> next time. Okay. And thank you. have a wonderful day. Yeah. You too. Thank you. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Melanie as much as I enjoyed talking to her. Um, I already want her back on the show because I have so much more I want to ask her about. Uh, but, oh, and also she is, as she said, she's having a, um, she's doing a workshop with Dia Penning, who is also on the show, and I'm definitely doing it. So it'll be on my social media as soon as they post something and, you know, maybe we should all do it together. What do you think? Um, so last week we finished the last of the yamas and the yamas were, are sort of like the way that yogis should relate to the world according to the yoga sutras. And then the niyamas are advice for relating to yourself. And the first one, the first niyama is saucha, which is cleanliness. And I really feel this deeply that like when you're clean, like when your closet is organized and you're showered and your space is, you know, I, and it doesn't have to be clean by whoever's standards, by, you know, standards of like a magazine, but just like cleanliness by your own personal standards and, you know, tidiness and organization. Like I do think it helps. It definitely helps with my inner peace and calm. Um, so like one big part, one part of my yoga practice is I practice usually showered and, or at least clean, like freshly showered or clean. And I, I don't know, I think it adds to the reverence of the practice. I know not everyone does. I know from teaching for years that not everyone showers before, 
but I actually, I don't know. I think, I think for me, it's important uh, to come to my practice with a clean body. Uh, and then, you know, I do think for like peace of mind, having like an organized space or, you know, organized in the way that you organize it. Like I just, I don't know, like I just cleaned out the car and you don't even realize, I didn't even realize that every time I got in the car, I had this like, you know, kind of wash of dread cause it's like messy and dirty. And now when I get in, it's like this lightness and freedom. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I just think cleanliness and organization is like good advice and like listen I'm like type B personality I'm not a type A so like my organization is probably different than yours if you're organized but like my you know in my own way like the way that I think things need to be organized enough for my peace I I do it's very important that I do for my own sanity um you know and I, I think it's the same for I think I really think it's the same for everyone. I think if you're, you know, living in a corner of your a corner of your house is like messy, you tend to not go there. So it's important to, you know, clean up the corners of your house, take a shower. Why not? It's springtime, especially now. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's the first niyama, and uh, we'll be going through the all the rest as the podcast progresses. And that is it for now enjoy your practice. I will talk to you in two weeks or sooner. You can find me at homebodies, Rebecca at homebodies yoga. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram. You can always go and rate and review now if you wanted, uh, by the way. Okay. Well, thanks. See you next week. Bye.